I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. And I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the 19th episode of Three on the Isle, a twice-monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. We're returning after a two-week end-of-summer hiatus, and I'm back in the saddle again after a somewhat longer absence. If you follow me on Twitter, you may know that my wife, the celebrated Mrs. T, has been ill, but she's on the mend at last, so here I am, after a fashion, speaking to you via Skype from the living room of our farmhouse in Connecticut. And Terry, we're thrilled to hear that Mrs. T is um, is feeling better, and we wish her, we send her love, and um, and and uh, we're thinking about her. Uh, Elizabeth and I are uh, in the studio in New York, not in the uh, plush living room that Terry <laughs> occupies. Uh, and we're here with our guest Eric Tucker. He's the founder and artistic director of Bedlam, one of uh, New York's most adventurous theater troupes. And it just happens to be opening a show uh, about which Eric will have a lot more to say with about uh, with us later on. And uh, first, uh, unfortunately, we have very sad news uh, that uh, a New York institution, I think we can say it was an institution, uh, Theater Talk, uh, sadly will not go on. Uh, theater Talk was a show about theater, was the little show that could for, I would say, pretty much a quarter of a century, and much of it was on CUNY TV, which was the uh, TV station arm of the City University of New York. Um Theater Talk was bringing theater into American living room in a very accessible, fun manner. And I'm not saying that just because <laughs> I was a regular guest on it, as we all were, actually. Uh, but it was really completely irreplaceable. And and one of the things that I think will be really missed is the diversity of people who really could listen to theater makers talk about theater. It, it was just incredible. Yeah, all of us were on Theater Talk. You're right. Uh, Elizabeth, you actually were a regular uh, during its last season when uh, 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 there was a rotating group of panelists who replaced uh, the inimitable Michael <laughs> Riedel, uh, uh, who had he had actually co-hosted the show with Susan Haskins Doloff uh, for a quarter of a century. Uh, and they uh, together had been... Uh, the engines that drove the show. Susan was, I think, the producer of the show. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, CUNY pulled the plug on them. Yeah, I actually, I was on both sides of the table. I appeared several times as a panelist. And once, uh, John Douglas Thompson and I actually appeared together as guests when my first play, Satchmo at the Waldorf, ran off-Broadway in 2014. And I learned... Uh, just how well prepared and thoughtful uh, the questioning was, and what a what a great job that theater talk always did of getting the most out of the people who were brought on to talk about what they do. All sorts of people, as Elizabeth points out, an extraordinarily wide ranging uh, group of guests over that quarter century. And as I think we're learning from the reactions to the the cancellation of theater talk and the social media. People watched that show all over the country, not just in New York, but everywhere. It was really quite remarkable. Well, you know, what was interesting uh, also is that uh, one of the great things, I think, one of the great differences between theater critics or people who write about theater and film critics is that the film critics, they see films at festival or in screening rooms. We're out there mm -hmm. with everybody else. And... I was recognized, and I'm not, this is not a brag, but it, I was recognized by people all the time at the theater. No, no, but because of theater talk. Mm. Yeah, and me too. they came me to too. me and they wanted to talk about shows and, and they would sometimes agree and sometimes disagree. And it was thrilling. And the last time actually that happened to me, it was a 12 year old girl who came to me who was watching theater talk, who recognized me, uh, and, Said I said, oh, well, you know, what have you liked lately? And she said, like, she loved Hades Town. This is a 12-year-old girl who was watching Theater Talk. And that, to me, really 
completely encapsulates why this is such a loss. Well, you know, it's interesting. It was a very low-tech show (laughs) in the sense that it was just people sitting around in in a not particularly interesting visually, except for the beauty of the people on on, obviously. Uh, clear, <laughs> clearly. Uh, but, clearly. <laughs> uh, but generally speaking, it was very sort of folksy. It had, it felt like, you know, last generation kind of idea of how to produce television. There were very few uh, cu- cuts, jump cuts to, to actual Well, there were very few cuts. It was almost done live. Right. And I wonder if, you know, it didn't move enough with the times. I wonder if there was a uh, at some point, it needed to jazz things up a little bit. You know, CUNY, unfortunately, apparently, was trying to push some quote unquote television host to come on, some well known character, as if that was the, you know, the, 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 the difference between uh, just a theater audience and, and you know, basically uh, making it something that would uh, hit the top of the Nielsen charts, which it was never going yeah, to do. Yeah, whereas right. to me, the genius of the show was that it brought on specialists to talk to a general audience. And it worked. It really worked. I mean, we know that from the response to the show. I mean, you're talking about getting recognized on the aisle. You know, I I get spotted all the time in the lobby of my apartment house in New York by people who've seen me on the show. Uh, These are not theater people in the sense that we are, but they watched and they obviously got something out of it. And uh, uh, it, it proved that However old-fashioned the mode of presentation of theater talk was, the content continued to be of interest to people who are interested in theater. Well, I'm glad. And I think that's it was a wonderful thing. I'll just say I'm glad that the two of you achieved two broke girls level fame. I can yes, proud, I can <laughs> absolutely. Say, I don't remember ever being recognized. What? But yes, I'm an anonymous character. So uh, by the two of you, I salute your. <laughs> telegenic <laughs> skill at, at turning that into your personal brands. But I do... Absolutely. I, I mean, I yeah. Do, was... I do wonder what it means not to have uh, a, a, the, a, a popular cultural sort of base on which to have uh, b- big topics on Broadway, stars of Broadway who can come in and talk about what they do for 30 minutes or 20 minutes. What are we, what are we now missing? I, I, I think it's very significant that, for instance, uh, the one piece of press that Amy Schumer did when she was doing a, a meteor shower, no matter what you think of that show, she went to theater talk. Right. Because it validated. it's... validated. You know, it's, it's, you can talk about it to, like, theater nerds who love that stuff. And I mean that theater nerds in the most loving way. Obviously, um, and also fun fact: <laughs> it created the, a menage a trois among us. That's right. We actually it's, we it's were right. all the three of us were on theater talk, uh, arguing about shows that some of us liked and others didn't. I don't even remember which ones, but a it was rhetorical pretty, menage a trois. It, right. that's it was yes. very animated and feisty, and we were like, "Well, this was really fun. We didn't agree on anything. Let's just try to do a podcast." And three on the air was born. So we as were on the Susan last show. Hasking reminded us every yeah. single time. Well, we were on the last show that uh, Michael and Susan did together, I think. I yes, think we, were we, were we were there. We were there. I think the fact I think the fact that theater talk, in a sense, was, uh, as Susan likes to say, the midwife for Three on the Isle, may say something about what that next generation uh, phenomenon of how theater gets talked about in the, the media may resemble. Uh, mm. We... The three of us went from being on the last TV show of its kind to a brand new podcast, uh, which is distributed in a different way, works in a different way, but I think in many ways does a lot of the same things Mm -hmm. that Theater Talk tried to do. Above all, that it brings the conversation, the discourse of specialists, both as creators and as writers, to an audience of anybody who wants to listen and uh, and I think we maybe. have to go into uh, life casting next. Life casting. Oh well, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I did. I oh, yeah. did. Um, the, 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 I will just say that the the most fun I ever had on theater talk, aside from uh, getting to uh, talk in depth with the two of you, was uh, a show I did with Ben Brantley and Joan Rivers. Oh my god! And it was <laughs> it was a riot because she was so nervous before the show. She had come in with uh, 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 a little uh, nine by 
whatever they're called, six by five, whatever, index cards of each show she had studied the night before. Uh, and, and, and it was like almost like as if she felt like she was getting her, you know, she was being uh, tested for her dissertation. And it turned out, and then when she got on, on, on stage uh, under the cameras, she just ripped everything. It was just hilarious. You know, it was just a hilarious 30 minutes. And it was fun. It, yeah. It, it, just, uh, it, it just showed you, you know, that, you know, it, that even people in the industry, very famous people in the industry, love the idea of talking about the theater. And and as we say farewell to theater talk, uh, uh, let us all remember that how wonderfully the show was served by its co-creator, Susan, uh, who did a wonderful thing, with whom we all had wonderful relations, and um, whatever she has in mind to do next, uh, I wish her the very best, because she's got a great thing that she's done now, and we're all going to miss it very much. Agreed. And... Agreed. We would have a moment of silence if the three of us could ever shut up, but, we're <laughs> but that's not going to happen. <laughs> so true. And now a few words about today's guest. Six years ago, an actor friend of mine told me that an actor friend of hers had put together a troupe of his own on a shoestring and that they were doing St. Joan at a black box theater in the village with a cast of four. She made it sound interesting enough that I showed up at Access Theater a few nights later to see for myself. The following week, I filed a Wall Street Journal review in which I said that it was the best George Bernard Shaw revival I've ever seen, bar none. That was my introduction, and New York's introduction, to Bedlam, a troupe specializing in small-scale classical revivals that are staged by, and more often than not, feature the acting of Eric Tucker, Artistic Director of Bedlam, and our guest today on Three on the Isle. I've written a lot about Bedlam in the past six years, but the review of mine that gets quoted most often is the one I wrote in 2014 about its productions of The Seagull and Kate Hamill's stage version of Sense and Sensibility. By way of introducing Eric, allow me to read you the lead. Great theater isn't about fancy sets or famous actors, though it doesn't necessarily exclude either. It's about imagination and intimacy. Given enough of both, a band of gifted unknowns can make theatrical magic in an empty room. That's what Bedlam Theatre Company is doing with its no-budget, off-off-Broadway productions, which are playing in repertory in a black-box performance space in downtown Manhattan that looks like the inside of a grungy warehouse. No theatre troupe in America is doing more creative classical revivals. On that note, Eric Tucker, welcome to Three on the Isle. Wow, thank you. He's uh, blushing. Perhaps, you can't tell that. Uh, good. <laughs> serves him right. Um, perhaps we just might get started, Eric, by asking you to tell us how Bedlam got started in the first place. Well, I had um, been living in Los Angeles for about six years and uh, moved back to New York, and I knew that at one point I would want to have a theater company um, so that I could you know, do my own work and sort of be responsible for having my own little laboratory and um, and, and and maybe actually root myself in New York a little more and not travel to direct as much. And so I found someone that I really thought would be a good partner for that, uh, Andrus Nichols, and we formed the company together. Uh, and, you know, I thought that was very important. I held off for a little bit after I moved back because I think it's incredibly important that you you know that the choice you make in terms of who you're going to do that with it's like a marriage you know and, there, and there's a lot of work to be done so it came about that way really just wanting a place where I could um do the kind of work that I like which you know on a on a on no not much of a budget of course it's going to be bare it's going to be minimal but I I I like that I like that kind of theater you know I think you can surprise people well, that's what I, I want to put my finger on for us to get started for people who have never seen the company. I mean, how did you get from Mickey and Judy, let's start a theater, to this is the kind of theater we want to be doing? And for openers, what kind of theater is that? How would you describe the aesthetic of Bedlam? I think um, it starts with um, the relationship to the audience 
Um, it starts with uh, what's the space we're going to be in and how can we bring that space alive and sort of marry the space with the text um, so we're not fighting against it. I think that experience for an audience is, I think when they walk into the room, they, that's where the experience begins. Um, if you're If you're lucky enough to be able to have a space that doesn't necessarily um, sort of lock in the parameters of, well, the stage is over there and here's the audience in the balconies and I know where the bathrooms are and where the lobby is. And, you know, when you go to a a Broadway show, which is fantastic um, quite often, you, you sort of know what to expect on the level of like going to a museum in a way that, and I think it's nice to be able to, upend those expectations so that you know you can remind people what theater at its best can be which is far from television or, or film which are both fantastic mediums and so we try to you know sort of challenge ourselves and challenge our audiences by bringing them into an experience they're maybe not expecting uh, you know, interestingly, Eric, you have brought two of your shows to Folger Theater in Washington, which is, you know, as as traditional a theater space as one could imagine. And interestingly, what what you do, for example, with uh, you brought St. Joan here, uh, St. Joan to D.C. recently, and there's a moment very early in the show where actually, and there are audience members on the stage. Uh, who are used in a sense in the production but also one of the actors uh, the, you place a cassette player from like the 70s at the at the lip of the stage and some one of the actors presses a button on it and that's where the sort of the score emanates from in part which I think you're saying to us uh, basically look we're this is all about breaking this down for you. It's, it's making this, uh, uh, remaking this, the idea of how you see a classic play uh, for an audience that doesn't want to feel as if there is a wide temporal gap between this work, between Shaw in this case, and what you guys are doing. Is that, you think, um, you know, and I know that you're not the only company that sort of is exploring this in interesting ways. Uh, are we somehow is your is your suggestion that that these plays are walking away from us in in more um, uh, stolid settings, and that somehow we need to claim them for ourselves in a way that we want to relate to them, sort of almost on a one to one basis? Yeah, you know what? What's uh, they they walk away from us? I think because we just get in their way, you know, mm. and forget how powerful the writing is, and forget the writer. Uh, I think when when a script is as good as Shaw's, uh, I mean, you don't you just want to stay out of its way and make sure they hear every word. Um, and I think whether it's in a Broadway house or whether it's uh, where we started at Access Theater, it's it's about marrying it to that experience. I think the tape recorder is an important thing to talk about because for me, we were in a – this is a good example. I think we were in a space, Terry remembers, of 50 to 60 people. There's like one really lame speaker in the place and a 10 lights, and but, but a, a wonderful little room. Mm. But you have nothing. Right. And I thought – At some point when we go into the cathedral scene, I would really love it if the sound could feel sort of full. And we I'd remember that always remember the first time I went to Notre Dame and I and the music that was playing Mm. throughout and it it took me away. I was so emotional in that moment and I thought if we could that that's the feeling I want at this top of this cathedral scene. I thought I can't get that here. I might make that experience feel a little more full if the sound up till then was from a crappy tape recorder on the ground. So it was really about letting the the one or two speakers in the space have a chance at making us feel something different because up to then. But but I I, I just want to follow that uh, that point. But you 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 prominently display it. You don't hide it right. so that we're going. What's the deal here? Right. You're 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 making a visual joke of it in a sense. Not a joke. I don't mean yeah. in terms of making fun of it. But you are making a statement when you put it there for us to see. And you're and there are. Uh, connotations people have with that kind of crappy tape recorder. Well, I think it's a way to include the audience. Yes, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's it's signaling to the audience you 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 know what's going on. You are part right, right. of what we're doing. I mean, it's it's so yeah. deliberate, yeah. clearly. Absolutely, and I think also, 
there's a there's a sense of anachronism in that and that we say on the floor this is 1429 but then there's a tape recorder from the right. 70s but at the same time you'll get lost in this play you won't care what mm. we're wearing and you won't care what the walls look like because the text is so fantastic and the tape recorder is important to me because that was simply about how to tell the story the best way in that room it wasn't about being cool or kind of hip or downtown it was like how can i give the audience an experience i want to give them and then of course at the folger we don't need that tape recorder but when we take the show to other places it's really about what elements do we want to sort of keep and what do we can we get rid of and if we don't need it let's get rid of it but at the same time you know, you want to keep the spirit of the original. That's always a, a question. Well, actually, you know, it's interesting because you were saying that uh, it starts from, from the space, mm-hmm. but you could also conceivably bring in like eight or nine people to do St. John at, mm-hmm. at Access Theater. But no, you're doing it with four. So that's really a very, another very deliberate, like why, why pare it down so much? Like what's the thinking behind that? Well, I think... If, if, couple things number one and not to make this sound i mean it, it just is what it is but is budget right you know <laughs> a, equity actors are expensive and when you have no money you that's the thing it's the it's the actors contracts and the rent that are the things that really kill you at first and i and well and always but but i also think when you're 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 forced to an audience sits forward and listens differently when they know they've got to watch character switches and things like that they mm-hmm. have to follow it in a way they have to work a little i think in the theater audiences should work a little and also frankly you know when you see a production with 20 f- actors there's go there has to be a varying degree of, of skill and right because some people oh, yeah. have five lines and some people are the leads when you have four people playing all the roles then hopefully you can attract for primo actors mm. that know they're going to get right. some fun stuff. Right, mm. right, right, right. Terry, did you? Right. Um, you're, you, you mentioned the word, you mentioned the lobby a couple of minutes ago. And in order to try to give our listeners more of a sense of what a production of yours is like and how the audience becomes involved in it, and perhaps you might talk about the element of surprise that, that often starts the moment the audience walks into the lobby. I'm thinking of what you did with Pygmalion um, Mm -hmm. uh, last season. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just might describe for us how that works and what it's supposed to do. Well, we built for Pygmalion, we had a space, uh, uh, coincidentally the same space where you saw the the first Sense and Sensibility in Seagull. And we built a kind of, I had wanted that set to be, I was really interested in those sort of old, um, timey operating theaters where you've got this sort of U-shaped um, seating kind of arrangement with a little table in the middle. And I wanted it to be sort of like a laboratory classroom of, of Higgins and not necessarily his um, a literal uh, workspace as you might see described in the in the play although it's not quite what we ended up with but there was a nod to that so we built that structure in the space but you had to walk in around it to get in so we corralled people just outside of that wooden structure inside the theater so it formed a kind of um, lobby just before you went in and I really again that's necessity we have five actors and you have to stage a scene a crowd scene outside of a theater slash church um, where where people are sort of corralled to um, wait for cabs and things in the rain and, you know, you can find all kinds of clever ways to do that with five actors and fun little group things to do. But I thought it's just so much easier if the audience has to be the crowd and we just move in and out of them, particularly when people are switching characters and you can kind of run around and fool them and pop up here and there. And and so I thought let's just keep them there and make them the crowd. And you just – there it is. And it's sort of this kind of environmental – suddenly it's an environmental um, – you know, a piece that that, and then they get to walk into Higgins' uh, room as a as another sort of uh, experience and event. Uh, one of the one of the just a second, one of the things I'm hearing, Eric, and and that I also see in your productions is that your productions look radical; they function in a radical way, but they're also very text driven. Is that is that a correct impression? Yes, I think so. I think they're text driven, and I think they're actor driven. In that, I really I have ideas about what it's going to be, but 
the fullness of it, the re- the the real fullness of it comes when I'm in the room with those actors because I don't know what they're going to give me completely. I mean, especially if I don't know them all. For instance, the the Pericles you saw at, at American Players. I mean, you know, I had this amazing cast of people, but I don't know how they all play together and with me and this and that. And I had ideas about it, but then what I what you're able to do once they're you're in the room with them. Or for a quick example, was the mid five person Midsummer that I had really wanted to do that with no prop no costume changes and no set and I just thought I don't know if I can do that until I get in the room with those actors and a couple days in I knew I could and so we went for it how do you make sure Eric uh, that it doesn't become shtick uh, the uh, interesting thing about Sense and Sensibility which was your biggest hit yeah played both in New York and in Washington I don't know where in else Boston. it went in Boston and in Portland yeah. it's uh, it's the, the most interesting I mean the, the fun sort of visual trick of the play is that it's all the sets are on wheels. Yep. All the chairs are on wheels. It's constantly in motion, mm-hmm. uh, which worked for this piece marvelously. It gave it another dimension of watchability. When even when, uh, uh, as the plot in that you know, with, which has massive amounts of exposition, mm-hmm. yep. is happening, you always had this other additional kind of um, uh, thing that that pushed that set that took me back to like Nicholas Nickleby with oh, sort of yeah. the invention of the stagecraft. But how do you make sure you haven't sort of you're not like the company that puts sense yeah. and sensibility on wheels? Yeah. I mean, how do you become? How do you make it so that people don't have that expectation that you're going to come up with some? magic act. Well, that's a good... I love that question because I check myself on that all the time and I my goal always as a director is to try to make something where it feels like it's a different director even though you, it's kind of nice when people go, oh, I feel like I could tell that was your thing even if your name wasn't on it. So both things are always going on but I do feel like with Sense and Sensibility yet again it was like Here's a here's a script where on every page there's a scene change or a time change or something and I thought the only way we can do this is to keep it moving I thought and I had done a, a lot of plays where I had things on wheels I, I always tend to have <laughs> things on wheels I have it in the current production but not to that level where everything's on wheels and I knew it was just going to keep swirling and changing and catching up to us so that was out of necessity mm, as well mm, mm, mm. but I think that the you know I mean if if you want me to that question would lead me to talk about why we're doing what we're doing now. That's yes. I can, good. I can All right. hold off Let's on that if you go, want to. Please. Do it. So the new production is Uncle Romeo, Vanya, Juliet. And originally I'd planned to do in rep Uncle Vanya and Romeo and Juliet. And I, <laughs> I, I actually way back was planning on doing Uncle Vanya with Peter Pan and and – you know, these things stay on the list and things come and go and we sometimes do rep, we sometimes don't. And this fall I wanted to do rep and, and I and then I started thinking about Romeo and Juliet a lot and thought, why don't we do that? I was interested in Romeo and Juliet from a middle age perspective. Nobody in our cast is old enough for the oldest characters in Vanya. No one's young enough for the youngest characters mm. in ah. Juliet. And I thought <laughs> there's a nice, you know, sort of middle age thing going on about what is it to fall in love in a way in the way they do in Romeo and Juliet when you've already been kicked around a little in life and etc. So anyway, I thought and this goes back to sort of trying to at least from an artistic director point of view saying how do we keep surprising our audience and how do we keep challenging ourselves and doing something really hard and scary. And I feel like if we go into the rehearsal room every day and we're not nervous, if we're not having fun but also can asking ourselves constantly what are we doing and can we pull this off we're now we have to keep raising the tightrope i think and so i thought as i was looking at these plays and thinking of them over the weeks and weeks i thought there's so many great parallels and similarities not just in terms of the themes but also just in events which you'll see as we've tried to the things we've mashed together and i just thought what if we did them at the same time? What if we made one play out of the two plays? It's hard. And we would just say, we're doing that. And can we do it? And 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 knowing that that could be a big no. You shouldn't. And like two great plays, why would you stick them together? You know, sometimes great things go well together and sometimes they don't. And do, well, how do they? Well, I mean, that's what we're still trying to figure out every day in previews. You know, we're cutting and moving things, and we had to keep reminding ourselves that we're making a oh, third wait, I, play. Okay, I'm, I'm a little confused. Are, are you doing them in rep, or are you doing a mashup? We're doing a mashup. Okay, all right. So it's not 
So it's one play. <laughs> okay. All right. That's what I wanted to. So, get. you know, in some ways people can be happy. They don't have to come twice. They just have to show up and you can see Roman Juliet and Uncle Vanya in one night. Uh, and, and I think it's just, you know, of course it's healthy. I think it's good for people to know they, they don't have to, because of that, they don't have to come in knowing the two plays. Right. They're going to see another thing right, that right. we're asking you to follow. Can, can you give, okay, I'm completely, <laughs> can you give us like, without being too spoilery or, yeah. or whatever, can you give us an idea of how this works? Because I really cannot wrap my head around it. Well, sometimes it works in ways that, say, for example, so we've chapterized it. So, for example, the first chapter we call Uncle Romeo, and it's really from <laughs> his point of view, from Vanya's point from, of view. Okay, but he's right. but he's obsessed with Romeo, and he's it starts oh. out almost in a dream sequence of him thinking about the play. You'll sort of see and. And then, but but not sort of hitting you over the head in that way. You have to kind of really go with it. But and then we move in the second act. We start off with Juliet's point of view. So we go from Uncle Vanya's to Juliet, and then uh-huh. they mash together later. But so sometimes it sort of cleanly goes from one scene of one of the plays into another. And we've tried as much as we can to lose something in one play that we don't need because we have it in the other so that we're not repeating events too much. So that's another weird thing. And then sometimes scenes are just competing. Mm. Oh, wow. You might have just, 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 Go, one scene from one play is going against another scene from another and sort of talking to each other, but you're following two events that are, feel like maybe one event. I probably have seen something <laughs> like the Worcester Group or somebody doing this in a much more sort of like with technology, right, or, you know, right. like one of them on a movie right. screen and the other. Oh, yeah. Uh, right, right. So, so textually, it's really interesting. And I just saw Uncle Vanya last week in a really wonderful production mm-hmm. at Hunter College. Mm-hmm. But um, So I'm really hepped up to see how this speaks to uh, how Romeo and, and Vanya merge. Uh, and it does feel like this is Bedlam 2.0. I mean, this is, this is you in some ways uh, moving to another dimension of, of invention. No, yeah, Terry? Yeah. Doesn't it sound? Well, you know, when you describe a Bedlam production just nakedly, it sounds avant-garde. And it mm. can sometimes sound like eat your spinach avant-garde. Hmm. But the actual experience of seeing these shows, the first word, other than moving, that always comes to my mind, is fun. Mm-hmm. They're tremendously playful, tremendously exciting, full of surprise. They don't feel like avant-garde enterprises, even though, honestly, that's what they are. And and uh, to me, that's really the definition of Bedlam, is, is the shows that I've seen. But the question, I guess, I have, uh, Elizabeth uh, and Eric, I'm also curious what you think. Does it restrict who is going to be your audience by the sheer... Um, uh, by the quality of what you're trying to do here, uh, do, do people feel as if they have to know Vanya as well as they know Romeo to be able to come to you? Is it for a sort of a theater insider crowd? How do you break through the way you did say with Sense and Sensibility to that next level, which is just the pure pleasure, as as Terry talks about it, of theater going and what you can do on a stage? Well, I don't think you can. I mean, I, I have to be honest. I think we I go into it knowing that I'm making a choice to do a show that is not everyone's cup of tea. It just mm. simply isn't. Um, and that and that there are people who will like it, hopefully, and there are definitely people who will not and who may leave an, even leave an intermission and think, oh, this isn't what I thought it would be, or they won't even show up knowing that it's not. <laughs> mm. It just isn't their cup of tea. I, I think the thing about... You know, having a hit with Sense and Sensibility is not as difficult because we, you know, we made it, it sort of felt, it, it's satisfied on the level of a musical because mm. of the movement. It's got that amazing ending. The script was wonderful. I had a great group of actors. In, in a sense, that formula is pretty easy. This isn't made to be a hit. It's really just to, to keep s- switching it up. And I feel like if we keep the audience on their toes and say, look, I, we're going to do what, we're going to take you where we want to take you from show to show and within those shows. So don't expect anything. Hopefully someday we'll have another hit like Sense and Sensibility or Joan and Hamlet or some of the other ones we've done. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about something. I was looking on the, on the Bedlam website uh, to look at the list of productions you've done. And because um, we've talked a lot about Bedlam doing classics. And, but uh, 
there's uh, shows. I mean, do you consider shows like um, uh, New York Animals and Cry Havoc like Bedlam Product? I mean, they're on the website, Absolutely. but are they okay? Because yeah. those are they're, they're new shows, yeah. and so clearly Bedlam is not just doing classics. And right. these two are completely. Uh, New York Animals is, is well is what <laughs> what was a musical, mm-hmm. a collaboration between Steven Sater and Burt Bacharach. That's right. Uh, which, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it's quite city. something. Yeah. Right. yeah, talking about mashup. Um, and Cry Havoc was a solo show, mm-hmm. which actually kind of in a roundabout ways goes back to your interest in how to deal with classics and yeah. how we experience them. Uh, it was uh, a autobiographical show about uh, a vet who found a new, um, well, I don't want to say a new life because, you know, but find a kind of like escape or salvation almost. Through through acting through Shakespeare. and Shakespeare, yeah, yeah. Can you tell tell us a little bit about these these shows, for instance, and how they fit into the the Bedlam aesthetic? Well, we always knew we wanted to do new plays and work on new and 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 produce new work. So it's when something comes along that we're interested in, either thematically or in other ways, we try them. You know, um, we had another show that was new called Dead Dog Park, and we, you know, we we. And and even Sense and Sensibility is a world premiere because it was a new right. adaptation. So we're we're interested in those things, and I think it's just that we want to work on things we want to work on. And so, um, you know, we're we we have a couple other another new play in the works that's contemporary, and then an, an, and we're we're we've just commissioned a, a new adaptation, a, a modern adaptation of The Misanthrope, which I think could be really fantastic. Mm. Well, so, lovely. Yeah. So we're we're that's something we. We'll continue to do, and when people have new plays we love, we'd like to. S- we like that. Mm-hmm. Do you? Um, by the way, uh, do you make a living as Bedlam's <laughs> artistic director? I, <laughs> is it is it a full time gig? Um, it feels like it. I mean, I between I still freelance uh, uh, as much of the time. So I, between the freelancing and Bedlam, that's my that's my job. Uh, you know, so the two of them. It's, but it's a lot of work because the bedlam grew faster than we thought, and mm. and so there's a, there's more work to that than we imagined this quickly. And but then I also freelance, and I like to freelance, and of course, you know, it's nice to have that extra both incomes. And do you and do you are you are you spawning sort of apprentice directors who who like are absorbing the Eric Tucker way of doing things? I think so. <laughs> you you do? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there you know I. There seem to be directors who are interested in the kind of work that I do, and they 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 like to assist, and they want to they want to. I think they're interested in making that kind of work, and so and some of them are are so brilliant that I love having them in the room. Well, and, and you're also spawning. <laughs> that's the right term, but it's fun. Um, you're also spawning. Uh, well, I think Kit Hamill at this point is is forging a reputation. Oh, absolutely. You know, on her own. And and uh, I just not that long ago I saw Andres Nichols, mm-hmm. who you had mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, in the um, holiness the holiness of Marjorie Camp. Was she? Um, yes. Yep. Yep. Right. Uh, so she's also doing things on her own, and it's it's great. I mean, I guess. Yeah, and to- Stefan, who did who does cry havoc, is right. out. He does that that show all over the the country uh, mm-hmm. and other places in the world actually did it in Rome. We sent him to Rome to do it. And oh, wow. it's such a great, you know, mouthpiece for our vets program and for helping vets reintegrate into society. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think a lot of people have are, are off doing nice work, which is so feels so good when you've been around six years. Right. Well, it's it, actually amazing. Like just six years, that feels like I know. a flash. Yeah, yeah, it does. You've become an institution, but you don't have a home yet. Right. And I, I'm wondering, is that the next step for Bedlam, is somehow to find a, a permanent or semi-permanent physical home for the company? I think a physical home for the company would be great because I think we would we could, if it was versatile in terms of the seating, we could do really great things we could probably produce more than we do and and but also um you know something that's not i don't think we want to become i don't think we want something that's over that's large and tough to manage i think we want to stay we want to stay at a certain level where we can continue to be surprising 
Yeah, well, I, I do understand that the, the five-theater Eric Tucker complex on uh, <laughs> Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street will be going up. It's a six-story building. Oh, okay. yeah. With okay. your likeness. Okay, the, we'll yeah, take it. I think that's a really wonderful tribute. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining us today, Eric. You know, the you show all. that he's doing now is Uncle... Vanya Romeo or Uncle oh. Romeo Juliet Vanya no. Uncle no. Romeo no. Vanya Juliet <laughs> Uncle Romeo Vanya <laughs> yeah. Juliet it opens uh, it starts performances on the 25th of September or it's or we well we've been in previews this right. week and we So it officially open, opens on the 25th and right. it runs through October 28th at ART New York Theaters So thank you again for joining us Thank you all Eric. Thanks so much And speaking of what we're looking forward to or or not uh, we're going to take a few minutes to look at some of the stuff that's coming down the pike in the first half of the 2018-19 uh, theater season, uh, which is getting underway now. Uh, there's a couple of big shows on Broadway, uh, premieres, plays, plays. Mm, lots of plays. Um, yeah, lots of plays this season, like in stark contrast to last year. Right. Uh, and the first two out the gate on Broadway are Teresa Rebeck's uh, Bernard Hamlet. Actually, it should be Bernard, because it's about... <laughs> Sarah Bernard <laughs> uh, and Richard Bean's The Nap and Richard Bean uh, actually you know at first it's crazy I've, I saw that previous show he did three or four times and I had to be reminded of who he was um, he did uh, the hit uh, One Man Two Governors uh, and his new one is called The Nap and it's about snooker uh, then among the other things we have uh, the premiere of Conor, Conor McPherson's Dylan musical Girl from the North Country, uh, The Public. And what else is coming out, guys? Well, I count 12 Broadway shows that are set to open between now and New Year's Day, and at least as many top-tier off-Broadway openings that are look to be of comparable interest, including Natural Shocks, the very first play by one of our previous guests, Lauren Gunderson, to have a major New York opening. So so tell me, colleagues, what out of all this action, what has caught your eye? What excites you? And if you're willing to say so on the air, what do you dread? All right. Well, I'm going to uh, preempt that with uh, one other question for the two of you, which is, yes. I think, you know, people might be interested to hear about, you know, it's a new season. We've been doing this all for many seasons. Is it still exciting to you guys to go through the lists and see what's coming? Is it the same experience that it was when you started reviewing and thinking about the challenge of sorting through all this material, all these new and revived pieces? I mean, does a new season, or, or are we now on such a cycle that we, we you know, are 12 I, months a year that it doesn't feel like a new season you know, anymore? I, I, oh, oh, no, no. This is, this is I'm, part of it, of course, is that I am particularly excited by this mix of shows that we have coming up. But, I mean, unless you're getting a season which is nothing but jukebox musicals and uh, revivals of, of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, uh, uh, I'm always excited. Hmm. Uh, I remember when I was a kid and they'd announced the new uh, TV season in the fall. You know, I'd, I'd go through the TV Guide preview issue and mark up everything I wanted to see. And I haven't changed a bit. Hmm. But this, this, I think, is an exceptional array of, let us say, possibilities mm. uh, coming up between now and the end of the year. And there's a lot of shows that I'm looking at and saying, I want to be there. Mm. Oh, no, me too. I'm very excited about a lot of the shows, but I don't even think about it as a new season anymore. Because lest we forget, the season actually has already, right. if we're talking about Broadway, sure. we've already had like three or four shows. Right, right, right. Uh, right. The Boys in the Band, um, right. Head Over Heels, I've all been, they've already, you know, up and running, oh, Getting up and running or they've gone. Up and closed. Up and closed. I right. mean, Boys in the Band was a limited run and right. it's already right. over. right, right, and right. And I think it's become such, it's like the news, you know, it's such a constant cycle that the idea of season right now is purely for awards purposes. Yeah. This may have been the cr most crowded season of openings on Broadway anyway that oh, I pre recall. Pre-September. Pre-September. No, yeah. it's, it, 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 yeah. it is a 12-month-a-year thing. But I, I just, it's, it's nice. I, I, you know, it's funny. I look at the list of things that we're going to see and I get that charge of, that I remember getting, which is, mm -hmm. my God. We get to see all this, you know. I right. mean, you know, forget the fact that it's a lot, a hell of a lot of work. Uh, poor us. Uh, but um, I really, um, I get that that moment of 
Okay, there are going to be things here that I'm going to adore, and there are going to be things here that are going to disappoint the hell out of me. But it's kind of wonderful to be able to sort of lay this all out for people and just talk about some of the things we are looking forward to. I always think, you know, they're going to, once again, another year, they're going to give me money to go see (laughs) shows and write about them. Right, 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 right. I just, I still, even now at the age of 62, I feel, and after like nearly a decade and a half at the journal, I still feel like a kid. Uh, it, it just it doesn't necessarily last more than five minutes into a given show. Mm. But right now, the excitement is 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 real and palpable for me, at least. Oh, for me too, absolutely. Yeah, I, I have to say that of the that you even mentioned one of the shows, uh, uh, Elizabeth, that I'm excited about because I saw it in London and I thought it was exceptional. It won't. I. It'll be interesting to see what kind of reception it gets here. It's called the Girl from the North. Girl from the North Country. It is based on the songs of Bob Dylan, not so much his early songs, m- many more of his songs of the seventies and eighties. Actually, oh, I, I hope they really uh, dug deep into the Christian catalog. <laughs> no, there's not my a lot favorite. Of it's <laughs> it's set in Minnesota, and uh, it was done with an English, ca- a British cast in London, who uh, whose accents were all over the place. And I'm not. Sh- I, I'm really interested to see how it translates here. And Connor McPherson wrote the book and directed it. So even though it's technically, I guess, a jukebox musical, if you can call Dylan's work jukebox, it is a Nobel Prize winner. Let's uh, <laughs> add uh, it's it's it goes deeper than that, and the story that they've put together is attached and not attached to uh, the music in an interesting way, and how those two things play in this depression era. I think it's depression era story. Uh, really. Um, makes it something other. So I, it may not be the right terminology to call it a jukebox musical, but I'll let you two uh, 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 decide that when you, you guys see it, and we uh, no doubt we'll talk right. about well, it again. I mean, it meets the formal definition of a jukebox musical, but it's also, lest we forget, not being put together by some team of, of I hate to use this word, but it often applies to these shows, Broadway hacks, but by Connor mm, McPherson, right, who is, right. uh, whether you like his work or not, and I do, he's one of the most important and admired playwrights uh, in the English-speaking world. Uh, uh, aside from the fact that the songs from the jukebox are written by a Nobel Prize winner, uh, this is a horse of a different color. And uh, uh, I think we should be excited about it. I know I am. What, do you, I, what else are you looking forward I, to? I would say I'm pretty excited that this, the next week's month, we're going to get to see some plays. Mm. Because the last season was so tragic when it came when it came to plays. I mean, it was really abysmal. I, I can't I can't even begin to. It was just horrendous. Right. And this year, at least now, and I think it's going to keep up that way. There's some really crazy, exciting stuff, and it's a great mix of revivals and new takes on new adaptations. Actually, the adaptations are interesting. Um, so we have two very high profile adaptations coming up: um, Network and To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, that I'm incredibly curious about. The network had a run in London, so it's I a saw bit it. more. You, what did you think of that? Uh, I thought uh, Cranston was excellent. I thought it needed work, and it uh, it it was the, the script was surprisingly uh, dated. Mm. The story uh, in in when it when that musical uh, with that I mean when that new movie <laughs> won the did it win the Oscar? Yeah, it did, didn't it? Uh, when it but when it premiered, the idea of the media and how it manipulates consciousness was was a much fresher idea and i don't think they quite licked it maybe they have by now mm. but anyway i'm sorry i didn't mean oh, to step no no on no your, no, on no, your... no i i was just thinking i'm a, i'm a completely intrigued so mockingbird though is big oh mockingbird is is Shift huge in. and uh, you know they've already overcome like a, a legal challenge from the estate uh they went through that uh, I am completely curious about that. And I don't have a particular, I mean, I think it's probably a thing to do with growing up not in the U.S. It is not part, the book is not part of my cultural heritage, I guess, as it is here. Uh, so I'm completely curious to actually probably give me an excuse to finally read the book. <laughs> mm. um, but I'm completely curious about it. I was just going to say, in addition to uh, to completely new shows, we also have uh, what the technical term would be Broadway premieres mm. uh, of real consequence. One is the Broadway premiere of a of a well-known, well-established off-Broadway play by Kenneth Lonergan, The Waverly mm. Gallery, uh, which, of course, uh, Lonergan brought his his first play, uh, This Is Our Youth, to uh, Broadway, finally, a couple of seasons ago. And, and uh, Lobby Heroes. 
Right. Something is happening. Something is happening with Lonergan. Uh, these plays, which should have gotten to Broadway a long time ago. And Michael Sarah. are getting there. Right. Are getting there now. And we're also getting, and for me, this is a very big deal. The New York premiere, it has been done regionally, I think most recently in Chicago at the Court Theater, of Tom Stoppard's latest play, The Hard Problem, which is coming to Lincoln Center's Off-Broadway House. Uh, even now, in our degraded state of theater, uh, what is essentially a Tom Stoppard premiere, at least for this city, is by definition a big deal. And Lincoln Center has quite a distinguished history of putting on his plays. So that's that's news. That's I, real news. I think another bit of news is the uh, is the juggernaut, <laughs> uh, the artistic juggernaut uh, that's now being forged by three by three theaters that have become this sort of um, intellectual alternative to Broadway. I would say St. Anne's Warehouse, uh, the Park Avenue Armory, and BAM. And what mm-hmm. they're doing is is absolutely a challenge to what we think of as uh, the things that are the centerpiece productions and where they head. Uh, and I will just name one at each of those places. Uh, the Jungle at St. Anne's, which is a huge hit from London, uh, from the Young Vic, that's coming to uh, uh, to uh, St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn. Uh, it's a set in a refugee camp in France, in Calais. Uh, then there's at BAM, uh, a show that's going to both be at BAM and the Kennedy Center. It's a measure for measure by uh, Cheek by Jowl in association with the Pushkin Theater of Russia. Mm-hmm. And it's directed, I believe, by Declan Donnelly. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I believe oh, it's yeah. in mm-hmm. Russia. I can't. Uh, is it in Russia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's been working with yeah. Russian actors for a while now. I, I just think that th- th- that. Is a, that sounds like a fascinating, um, and unfortunately, um, Park Avenue Army doesn't ha- seem to have anything in the fall. But they're bringing the Lehman trilogy from London to their uh, their facility, that giant, wonderful mm-hmm. space in the spring. But I just wanted to say that I think this may be the season where we really um, acknowledge and see how these they have, they they have stolen the um, momentum in terms of what is new and exciting away from uh, Broadway. We'll see if that's the case. Well, I think Broadway Broadway's main asset at this point is big names. The, these companies do not bank on that. Right. Uh, I mean the you know the Armory, uh, Saint Anne's, and and Bam usually, uh, mm-hmm. but Broadway still brings in names that people want to see. Uh, that is just absolutely not debatable. Right. Then whether the vehicles and the direction and the production is <laughs> as good as we want them to be, whether right. it's something else, but um, right. Though Broadway can do both as well. I mean, mm-hmm. Network yes. is in a sense a commodity show. Totally. Based on a very, very famous right. movie, starring a very, very famous actor, but directed by uh, Evo, quite, quite the avant-garde creator. Right, Yvonne and Lampone. you're right. It gives it a different, and it gives it a a different level of of interest. Terry, I'm just curious. I know you have been somewhat um, homebound over the last several months, but are there things across the country that you're starting to try to get into your sites? Um, are there no, any productions for, for yet? For the moment, for the moment, I'm not traveling outside the regions, uh, outside this region. I just can't get too far away from Mrs. T. Although uh, I am heading out to uh, Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey uh, next weekend, which is doing a revival of Sam Shepard's Buried Child, mm. uh, a play that I haven't had a chance to review in the last decade anywhere, mm. uh, and. Uh, there's always stuff happening, Uh, no matter how you define regional, even if uh, in my present circumstances, it's Connecticut and New Jersey and and, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, There's there's always exciting stuff to see. And uh, I intend, insofar as I can fit it into the the matrix of what's opening in New York, uh, to travel in this immediate region as much as I can. I mean, my... My job is still for me to be a, as as much as I can a national critic, right? And even if I can't make it to D.C. or to Boston right now, uh, I'm there's no shortage of shows. Uh, I've got a I've got a revival of the Drowsy Chaperone coming up <laughs> uh, at uh, 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 Goodspeed Theater in Connecticut. Hmm. And when did we last get a chance to see that remarkable right. music? Right. We also have a, a a revival coming up in New York of a particular kind. It's a play that I reviewed, I think, in my first or second season at the Journal by Lynn Nottage. Um, oh, oh, I know that fa- one, yeah. Right, Fabulation, or The Reeducation of Undine. Yeah, that's and since good. Since then, 
Since then, Lynn has become a major voice in American theater, and I'm very excited about getting a chance to come back after a decade and a half. Now, I, this was the second Lynn Nottage play I saw after Intimate Apparel. And now she's the Lynn Nottage that we all know from Swed and, and these other amazing things that she's done. And I'm really, I'm really looking forward to finding out, courtesy of Signature Theater, how does this show hold up? Interesting. That, about, Elizabeth, that, are there other, uh, are well, you going to travel outside the region at all, do you think? Um, probably not, unless, you know, like a wealthy uh, patron wants to send me out, <laughs> pay for my travel, right. like, you know. Um, but actually, I'm going to bring attention to uh, a show that's going to play in New York uh, for just like three three or four performances early October. And it's a very uh, interesting looking revival of art, the Yasmina Reza hit hmm. um but uh. it's done by a couple uh. well it's it's not really about that it's what's interesting Ugh. about this uh, i'm actually a reza fan but we're, we're not going to get into ah. that <laughs> <laughs> he's making strangled cat noises ah. oh no oh no wait wait wait! but hold on <laughs> this is not so much about the play itself which of course it is but it's not just about that it's two <laughs> it's two european companies but what they're doing is interesting because they're collective companies that do not use directors so the work oh, really? is entirely entirely done yeah well purely collectively uh and that is a very interesting experiment especially because one of them has been around for like 20 years now so it's clearly working for them <laughs> one of the things they did they did an adaptation of my dinner with andre they went on for like five hours because there was a real dinner on stage and <laughs> that's what they do at network there's actually a dinner they do it like a real time. Yeah, dinner? he serves a. Re- it's a restaurant on stage called Food Work at Network. I'm not kidding. Oh my god! And he serves, and there's ten tables, and they serve a full dinner. I I, I don't know if they're going to do it in New York. They did it at the National. Really? Yeah. I'm sure they they're going to have to do it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, you know this this idea of non directed productions is very interesting. There is an American company that does this. I've seen a lot of uh, non directed right American Shakespeare Center at Blackfriars Playhouse in Staunton, Virginia. Uh, does Shakespeare revivals as part of its uh, larger program of putting on uh, in an, in an original Elizabethan space uh, Shakespeare shows, but it has a regular series of productions that are done without any director at all. They're simply put together by the actors going on stage and letting it rip. I've never seen any of them. Oh, but I, I'd love to I've, one of these days. I've seen a lot of shows that weren't directed by anyone. <laughs> 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 But anyway, and I, I just want to say one of the well, I just want to bring the, the rest of the country in slightly by going right down the Northeast Corridor to D.C. for just a couple of things, because I do think another th- trend we're seeing and maybe mm-hmm. an interesting one is the number of of maybe sort of devised kind of shows that are uh, that 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 uh, that that come to interesting uh, spaces that are not just in small spaces, but in, in, in established theaters. And there's a, two, two shows in Washington, one called The Fall and one called The Fever. Uh, the Fever was done in New York by mm-hmm. 600 Highwaymen, right. uh, which I'm really looking forward to. And The Fall, which is from uh, – it's a po- it's about students uh, in post-apartheid Africa is coming to studio theater. And they, they signal uh, to me another trend, which is how do we sh- how do we present pieces to an audience that so is used to linear uh, drama uh, and, and bring it into spaces that uh, are going to show us things in, in new ways? I, I wonder if this is going to spark um, more and more of that. I, Sounds like Bedlam. It does sound like Bedlam, indeed. I, I really it, think audiences are ready for that. Yeah, I do too. Like, totally ready. Uh, I don't believe in talking down to audiences and underestimating audiences' brains, although sometimes when I see some of the stuff on Broadway, I, I do believe that it can pay off. <clears throat> Pretty woman. But um, <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> we should wrap this up. <laughs> No. I could just we could oh just do God. a whole podcast with just noises like say shows and just make noises afterwards like ah or uh, you know, the small then, mouth sounds edition small, of, yes uh, exactly <laughs> and Eric Tucker could direct it that's <laughs> right. right that's right perfect well you know I mean immersive theater is you know, on one level it's a fad on another it's, level it is a new way of presenting theater that seems for whatever reason to be speaking to younger audiences. Yes. And as we were talking to Eric a few minutes ago, I mean, we didn't use the word immersive to, to discuss any of his techniques. Right. But it's clear that these things are getting out into the bloodstream of American theater and uh, uh, maybe faddish, maybe important, maybe both. But uh, it sure sounds like we're going to see a lot of it in the 
seasons to come, mm. for good or bad, for good and bad alike, probably. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Of course, we've only scratched the surface of what's coming between now and the end of December, but it does look like that's all we have time for today. Uh, we'll be back with much more talk about theater, but until next time, I'm Terry Teachout. I'm Peter Marks. And I'm Elizabeth Lincentelli. Our producer is Kirby Pate. You can follow us on Twitter at 3 on the Isle and write to us at 3 on the Isle at gmail.com. Both of them are spelled out. And please feel free to contact us to let us know what topics you'd like to hear us talk about on future episodes. And don't forget to leave a review or a rating on iTunes or Google Play. And, and we may make some like special animal noises. Exactly. Customized. We will ta- we'll accept Customized animal noises. Customized animal noises. <laughs> totally. We'll, we'll, we'll take so them too. So thanks for listening, however you do that in special noises. And we will be with you again soon on the aisle.